while you get situated. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 39. We're going to spend uh, our time there here in, in just a minute. While you get turned to there, I'm going to share an experience I had with you while I was in high school in college. I, I spent seven, six or seven summers lifeguarding at Clayview Country Club. Uh, felt like a lifetime. And um, my boss while I was there was Bob Cornell. He's now the athletic direct, director at uh, Liberty North. And in the summers, he would, he would oversee the pool at Clayview. And Bob and 17-year-old Tim really did not see eye to eye as is the case with most 17-year-olds and their employers. And it all centered around one thing, and that was breaks, breaks at work. Did we deserve them, and could we take them? And so Clayview was set up that there were uh, two main lifeguard stands on the pool, and then there was one in the kiddie pool area, and then there was a fourth spot that needed somebody present at all times, and it was the spot where people would walk in, and so... Um, we were just supposed to greet people and um, check to see that people were members and all of those kinds of things. But at most of the day, like the peak time of the day, there were five lifeguards working. And so you would rotate in those, to those positions every 30 minutes. And that meant there was a 30-minute span of time every couple hours where you didn't have to be in a spot. You didn't have to be on a stand or you didn't have to be there at the entrance. And so in my humble opinion... That 30 minutes could be spent getting a snack or taking a swim if you wanted to or just hanging out with your friends. In Bob's opinion, no breaks. You find something to do. Clean the deck, pick up trash, you know, interact with people, uh, generally just be an employee of a place for 30 minutes. And uh, I was adamantly opposed to that. And so Bob and I just, man, we would butt heads and he would come in. Uh, and it became kind of a running joke, I think on his side, not necessarily mine, that he would come in to Clayview whenever he would show up, and if I was working, he would walk by me, and he would just say, no breaks today, Tim. And I would think to myself, as soon as you leave, I'm taking a break, Bob. <laughs> and I would, try to, I would try to align my work day, uh, especially when I was in college and I was one of the uh, like there would be a guard on staff on every shift that was kind of in charge. And when I was in college, I had been there long enough that I was in that position. And so I could tell people to go where to go when the pool opened. And so I would position myself to maximize my 30 minute, uh, no break times. And so I would try to get one immediately the first 30 minutes. And then the last, try to guarantee that the last 30 minutes that I was there was also going to be not designated to a spot. Um, I would literally kind of position my summer around maximizing my no breaks And upon reflection, uh, you know, 14 years later or whatever, I realized that as a lifeguard, a swimming pool where people are in water, breaks aren't actually a great idea. Someone should, in fact, pay attention to swimming people. Um, And that from Bob's side, that as the person managing that and wanting to do it well and wanting to serve uh, the Uh, members at Clayview, well, it absolutely made sense that because of his passion to do that, he would desire no breaks, right? When you're passionate about something, when you want to do something well, 
it's easier to adopt that kind of mentality or that type of mindset if you're married. I, don't, I, I'm, I love my wife. I'm passionate about my wife. I don't need a marriage break. I don't want a marriage break. If you've got kids, you might want some breaks, but like <laughs> in like the macro sense of having kids, you love your kids. You're passionate about your kids. You want to parent them well. And so this like, I don't need a break from that. If you've got a career that's more than just a J-O-B job, but is a passion of yours that you love, then you want to do that thing well. And so you get to work and you want to give it your energy and give it your time and your focus and your attention. Tuck that away. Because as we dive in to look at Joseph this morning, we're going to circle back around to the no breaks idea. And so kind of file that away. We're going to wrap up the book of Genesis this morning and then in our reading over the course of this week. And the last uh, scene, if you will, the last act in the book of Genesis is centered around the life of Joseph. In fact, Joseph gets more time in terms of his story in the book of Genesis than anything else. Creation gets 3 4%, 5% of, of the book of Genesis. The fall gets 3 4%, 5%. Abraham gets like 20% of the book of Genesis. Isaac is less than 10. Joseph is almost a third of the book of Genesis, 30%. Now, not that that diminishes the importance of any of those other aspects of the story, but it certainly means that we should pay attention to what it is that we read about Joseph in the book of Genesis. And what it is that we see a little different than what we saw with Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, where we saw the big, kind of big overriding themes of their lives. What we see in the life of Joseph are details. Details that matter. Details that are orchestrated by the Lord. Details that are important to the advancement of His will. We see details. And I just want to walk through some of those. If you were to sit down and read Genesis 35 to 50, it would probably take you somewhere in the neighborhood of 25, maybe 30 minutes. That's the story, the account of Joseph's life. And what you see is that Joseph is the favorite son of his father, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is the favorite one. And he has some dreams. And in those dreams... He gets this picture of his brothers and his family bowing down to him. And that makes all the other brothers, the 11 other brothers, very jealous. And so one day, while Joseph and 10 of his brothers are uh, out and about, they come up with a plan to kill Joseph. And one brother steps in and says, wait a second, I don't think we should kill him. Let's throw him in this pit over here. And so they throw Joseph down in the pit and then they sell him to a group of Ishmaelite traders for what is the equivalent of like 200 American dollars. They sell their sibling into human slavery for 200 bucks. And those traders take him to Egypt where he's sold to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar is an official for Pharaoh, and Joseph rises to a place of prominence in his service in Potiphar's house. He becomes head over the entire household, is what we're told. And once that happens, Potiphar's wife begins to take notice of him. The text actually tells us in Genesis 39 that Joseph is handsome, and that Potiphar's wife takes an interest in him, and so she tries to seduce him, and he resists that over and over until one day he goes into the house to do his work, and there's nobody else in the house besides himself and Potiphar's wife. And she tries to seduce him once again. And Joseph goes to flee the room. But she is left with his, his cloak in her hand. 
And so she takes that and she comes up with a story to wrongly accuse him of trying to rape her. And Joseph, when Potiphar hears that, is thrown into prison. Wrongly accused, thrown into the king's prison, Pharaoh's prison, where again he rises to the top in this environment to where he's actually put in charge of all the other prisoners there in Pharaoh's prison. So a couple men end up showing up down there, the Pharaoh's cupbearer and the Pharaoh's chief baker, and they have dreams. And Joseph interprets those, and those dreams come true, and the cupbearer and the baker are leaving the prison, and Joseph says, hey, remember me in front of Pharaoh, which seems like a reasonable request, but they completely forget, and their dreams uh, that Joseph interpreted come true just as he said they would. And one day, years later, Pharaoh has a dream. And he's trying to find someone who can interpret it. And the cupbearer says, wait a minute, I remember a guy. When I was in prison, there was a man there who could interpret dreams. You should bring him up to do that. And so that's exactly what Pharaoh does. And Joseph comes and he stands before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells him this dream and Joseph interprets it. Pharaoh, there are going to be seven years of plenty in your country. And then seven years of famine. And you should store up the food from the years of plenty so that in the years of famine you can distribute it to all those who need it. And Pharaoh says, that's a great idea. We should put somebody in charge of that, and you should do it. And so Joseph is lifted from the prison to literally second in command in all of Egypt. And he oversees the distribution of food, and in that time, his brothers show up. The same brothers that sold him for $200 into slavery. And they need food. Joseph provides them with food, and they don't recognize him, and there's this back and forth Uh, of them going back home to Jacob and the rest of the family and coming back to Egypt a couple of times. And the whole story ends with the Israelite people, Jacob's family, Abraham's descendants, given land and a place to live in Egypt because of Joseph's position within the uh, distribution of food, within Pharaoh's kind of regime there. Details. Details that are drawn out and given to us very clearly and that matter incredibly, incredibly explicitly. One of the things that we've talked about or some of the things we've talked about in the book of Genesis are really big kind of theological ideas that God is creator, that he is sustainer, that he's moving the world and all of human history forward for the advancement of his glory and his will and his purposes in the earth. We've seen that humanity is sinful and that God desires a relationship with humanity and so he's going to do something to redeem humanity. And these are huge, lofty ideas that play themselves out all the way from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And yet, in this story, we see that God is just as concerned about the details in a person's life as he is about the huge universe that's all around us. The God who created the universe all around you is the God of the details that surround you. Nothing escapes his view. Nothing escapes his eye. More importantly, nothing escapes his will. The details matter. God is infinite and indescribable, yet he's purposeful and he's personal. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to read Genesis 39. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's going to take me a couple minutes. It's like 23 verses long. And as I read it, there's a phrase that jumps out multiple times. And as you're reading scripture, if you come across something that's repeated, it probably means it's important. 
And four times the same phrase appears in Genesis chapter 39. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along with me while I read, you can do that. Or if you just want to listen, listen for what's repeated while we read this. Genesis 39 says this, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as he spoke, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled from the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of this house. As soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Four times we hear the phrase, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph. When he's thrown in a pit and sold into slavery and arrives in Egypt, the Lord is with him. While he's serving in Potiphar's house and rising to a position of prominence, the Lord was with him. When he's thrown into prison, after being wrongly accused, the Lord is with him. And when he ascends to a place of uh, prominence and oversight within the prison, we're told that the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. As we wrap up the book of Genesis over the course of this week and you think backward about everything that you've read to this point and you look at this story, I hope that one truth just screams out from your heart. And it's that in all things, the Lord is with you. In your moment of deepest despair, the Lord is with you. 
I can't even imagine what it was like for Joseph to be sold into slavery by his brothers and to be taken to a place that he does not know and put into the house of a man that he does not know. And yet we're told that in the midst of that, the frustration that had to surround that, that the Lord was with him. I don't know what it would be like to be wrongly accused of something like Joseph is and thrown into prison and have no idea if you're going to spend the rest of your life there, if you're going to be executed there, and yet we're told that in the midst of that, the Lord was with him. I don't know every situation that exists for every person in this room, but I do know that the truth for every person in this room is that in the midst of that situation, the Lord is with you. He's with you. He will not abandon you in the middle of that thing. The details that surround it matter to him. He's not just God in like an out there kind of exists somewhere beyond us and lets stuff play out in an impersonal way. No, he's a personal God and he is with you in the midst of your deepest despair. But the flip side of that is true as well, that in your moments of greatest triumph, the Lord is with you. Joseph is brought from the prison before Pharaoh in order to interpret the dream that Pharaoh had. And it's remarkable. He's been forgotten in the prison that he never deserved to be in in the first place. And he gets this moment of almost retribution where he could stand before Pharaoh and make whatever case he wants. And Pharaoh says, can you interpret my dream? And Joseph's response to him is, it is not in me to do this thing but God can. After years of challenging circumstances, Joseph understood that the Lord was with him then and that the Lord was with him now in his moment of triumph and in his moment of success. And the same is true for us. There is deep comfort in knowing that the Lord is with us regardless of our circumstances, no matter how dark or bleak or tragic they may seem at the time. And there's also a grounding, humbling effect of knowing that in our great success or in our moments of triumph, the Lord is with us as well. If you listened to the podcast that replaced the sermon on the book of Job, you heard me talk about the fact that one of the things that's unique to Christianity as opposed to any other religion or philosophical Uh, framework that exists out there is that it offers something us in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our grief that nothing else does. And it's the reality that God himself and the person of Jesus Christ suffered as well. And it's that when we find ourselves in deep despair, when we find ourselves in circumstances that seem awful and that we don't think anyone should ever have to deal with, we also can look to a Savior who suffered in a way that's unimaginable to us. Separation from a Father that He had had perfect unity with for all of eternity. While He hung on the cross and the sin of the world is placed upon Him, He goes into a place of anguish and despair that none of us will ever have to experience. And we can look at Him on the cross and say, You too. You suffer too. And from that place, Jesus can look at us and say, yes, me too. And I'm with you in the midst of your suffering. And I'm with you in the midst of your triumph.
There's comfort in that. There's perspective in our moments of triumph. And both of those should lead us to a place of worship. I want to take a step back and think about some of what we've seen in the book of Genesis to this point. That God created the world and everything in it. And that He sustains it. And he controls it. And He moves it forward at His will for His glory. That He's transcendent and high above everything that's here on this earth. And yet He's imminent and intimately involved in everything that happens here on the earth. That He sets the parameters by which humanity and all of His creation can function best within the universe that he created, and yet that humanity, though made in his image, has broken those parameters, continues to break those parameters, and will always break those parameters. That he's holy and righteous and just, and because of that, he must carry out the consequences for sin. Nonetheless, he's loving and merciful and patient and gracious, and he longs to live in relationship with us. And at this point in Genesis, where we are, we know that he's going to use the family line of Abraham to redeem all of humanity back into relationship with him. And from where we sit today in 2017, we know that he did that through Jesus Christ and his life and death on the cross. And all of that is really great kind of heady theology kind of stuff that we can talk about and say, yeah, I mean, it sounds good. God is big and wonderful and loving Yet when we get into moments of unexpected, unwanted, unwarranted, or seemingly undeserved circumstances, it's hard for us to grasp those things. And it's because if they've not ever made the move from your head to your heart, then they're nothing more than knowledge. They're nothing more than facts that someone once said from the stage on a Sunday morning. Our head's theology must become our heart's Reality, The big and wonderful and glorious realities of who God is must become fond and close and precious truths that our hearts cling to. We can sit down and read the entire account of Joseph's life in 25, 30 minutes. But when Joseph was sitting in the pit about to be sold into slavery, he didn't know how that was going to end. When he was in prison, he didn't know how that was going to end. We read the story and can see the ending. And when we find ourselves in our own troubling or challenging circumstances, we don't know how the story is going to end, but we can know for certain that the Lord is with us in the midst of those and that he takes no breaks. None. Nor does he need someone to walk by him once a day while he's at work and remind him that he's not going to take any breaks that day. It's because he's passionate about humanity. It's because he loves us so deeply that he would not just be involved in the big universe kind of stuff, but also in the intimate details that surround our lives. And until our head's knowledge of who God is becomes our heart's reality that we cling to and that give us life and hope and joy, it can be very challenging to sit in the midst of our life circumstances and know without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord is present with us there. Tim Keller says it this way, only when our greatest love is God, a love that we cannot lose even in death, can we face all things with peace. Only when our head's theology becomes our heart's reality 
Could we be in the pit or in Potiphar's house or in the prison or in Pharaoh's palace and know with certainty that the Lord is with you? He is with you in all things, highs or lows, ups or downs, seen or unseen, felt or unfelt, happy or sad, joyful or sorrowful, sin or success, triumph or defeat, prosperity or poverty, the Lord is with you. He's in your details. He knows them. He's using them. He is with you. And when we know that that's the case, it means that the second side of this can also be true. And that's that in any of those places, not only can the Lord be with us, we can be with and for the Lord. That we would be willing to sit in whatever our circumstances are and say to ourselves, Lord, I know that you are loving and merciful and gracious in all of those wonderful, heady, theological things, but I also know that you're present with me in my struggle right now. And because of that, I want to use this time to make you known to the world around me because that's what you want to use this time for. At all times and in all seasons, you can trust the Lord. You can rely on the Lord. You can rest in Him and glorify Him and worship Him and proclaim Him. And at all times and in all seasons, we have a God-given platform from which to speak of His unthinkable, undeniable, unmerited grace. And the beautiful picture of that is found in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is in prison in Rome. He writes a letter to a church in a city called Philippi. And he says this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It has become become known throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, many of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and boldly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love knowing I was put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they could stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I will rejoice in my prison cell in Rome, waiting for my death. I understand that the Lord is with me and that because he put me here, Everyone in this prison understands the glory of the Lord and that I am here to make Him known. And the people outside of here have been encouraged to speak the gospel more courageously and fearlessly. Because Paul understood that the Lord was with him, no breaks, Paul knew that he could be for the Lord, no breaks, even in prison. It's an incredible picture and a challenge that we can use the platform that we've been given at any time in our life to glorify the Lord and bear the image of Jesus in a broken world, to speak the gospel to those who are nearby us and never take a break. But none of that can happen until what you know about God moves from your head 18 inches south to your heart 
and becomes the controlling reality of who you are and how you live your life. I want to end with some concluding thoughts on the book of Genesis in general as we're going to move to the book of Exodus following this week's reading. And T.A. is going to take us into that next Sunday. But the importance of Joseph's life is the following. He's this crucial cog in the fulfillment of God's promise to redeem humanity from their sin. He saves the Israelite people from this crushing region-wide famine. And in Genesis 15, verse 13, God promised Abraham the following, Know that for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And that's how the book of Exodus begins. With the Israelite people enslaved in Egypt. And Joseph wraps up the book of Genesis by saying in Genesis 50 verse 20 to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. No detail was lost on Joseph. and No detail was lost on the Lord. There's a woman named Jill Briscoe. She recently spoke at Uh, the IF Gathering, which is a women's conference nationwide. And she offered three encouragements to her audience. And I think that they are a perfect way to summarize the book of Genesis and what we've read up to this point. The first one is this. Go where you're sent. Go where you're sent. We saw that in the life of Noah. We saw it in the life of Abraham. That sinful, broken people attempting to live faithful lives before the Lord, go where He sends them as an act of faith. And for us today, that could literally be to the end of the earth, that we would feel the calling of the Lord to spread the gospel to a particular group of people, and we would be willing to pack up and move there. It could be to your child's room down the hall. It could be to your neighbor's house down the street or to the cubicle on the other side of your office building. In all actuality, it's probably some combination of all of those things. But we should go where we're sent. That's a simple act of faith. The second encouragement is this. Stay where you're put. Oftentimes we find ourselves in the midst of circumstances that we never would have chosen for ourselves. We never would have picked that particular set of, of life occurrences. And yet that's where we find ourselves. And the second encouragement is stay there. Lean into that. That's what we see in the life of Joseph. He stays where he's put and he uses that platform in order to proclaim who the Lord is in that place and in order to be used to advance the Lord's purposes and to bring glory to him in that place. That is an act of faith. To go where you're sent or to stay where you're put. And then the final one is this. Give what you've got. Wherever you are right now, whatever your platform is, whatever your circumstances are, Give what you've got in that place. Your energy, your time, could potentially be your finances, your emotions, your mental capacity. Most importantly, give what you've got, which if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, is the greatest truth in all of human history, in all of the world, and that's the message of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of humanity. Wherever you might be, whether you've been sent somewhere or whether you've been put somewhere, give what you've got in that place Give the message of the gospel to the people that you're there with. One of the things that I have been praying 
uh, repeatedly recently is that we would be a church that understands that regardless of our circumstances, that regardless of the details of our life at any particular moment, that the Lord is present with us there and that we can be for Him in that place and that we would allow that to be the overriding truth of our heart and of our life, that no matter what happens to me, Lord, I want to use my life to make You known in that place and to glorify You There, That no matter what goes on in my life, be it wonderful success or difficult, trying tragedy, that we would be a people who are marked by a heart that in any time in our life cries out one simple thing over and over and over again, and that's, give me Jesus. In the middle of my great success, don't give me more success, give me Jesus. In the middle of my trying suffering. Yes, we want relief from that thing. We can certainly pray for it, but also in the midst of that, we can pray in this time right now, Lord, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. And so I want to end our time together this morning uh, by singing a prayer together. And uh, normally I would invite Brian up, but I wanted to just be able to sing this with you. And so if you would stand, I'm going to move back here. The name of this song is Give Me Jesus, and it just has three verses that are very simple. I dropped something. The first is, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. The second is, when I am alone, give me Jesus. And the third is, when I come to die, give me Jesus. That that would be the prayer of our life. So will you sing with me? In the morning When I rise In the morning When I rise In the morning When I rise Give me
can have all this world. Just give us Jesus. In our despair, give us Jesus. In our joy, give us Jesus. In our trial, give us Jesus. Lord, we praise you because we know that you are with us at all times, in all things. And Lord, by your spirit, would you empower us to be for you in all times and in all places, at all times, no breaks. God, with the cry of our heart as a church collectively and as individual followers of Jesus, be give us Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. There'll be people uh, up here who would love to pray with you this morning. Otherwise, have a great, a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.